acknowledge and identify. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Welcome, human. Logan! I am ready for you. How many of you want this to be lasting? I never heard of a Sandman running, ever. There is no sanctuary. Fish, plankton, sea greens, and protein from the sea. You don't have to die. Well, no one has to die at 30. You can live. Live. You are terminated, runner. Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner, overwhelming, am I not? Now, fly the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bin. Retrogram complete. Proceed 03303. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. I'm Paul Spataro, and that is Scott Gardner, so you know that means we are covering Logan's Run. Well, you didn't know that, but now you do. (laughs) What's up, Scott? Hey, not too much. I'm doing great. I'm uh, I'm really looking forward to this. I, I probably have said this for every single uh, episode of this so far, but I love this series, and this is one of my favorite issues. So, yeah, I'm itching to get into this one. All right, cool. I, I um, hope the listeners are enjoying us our coverage of this series as well. And uh, more than anything, and I really want to hear from you, uh, listener, if this is the case, uh, I really want to hear from people that... Uh, this may have been off their radar and now they're intrigued or maybe they even uh, sought this out because of our coverage of it. Um, I, I really want to hear from you if that's the case. And I really want to hear from you uh, positive or negative uh, if you did go out and seek this out because of our coverage and what you thought of it. You know, hopefully you loved it. But uh, if you hated it or just were indifferent to it, I want to know that, too. You know, so let us know. Yeah, with the exception of the Thanos uh, short story issue. I don't think mm-hmm. any of these go for any particularly high amount. I think they can be found pretty pretty much on the cheap. You know, a dollar, two dollars, maybe if it's crazy, five dollars. It's funny you say that because, as you know, you know, you and I were talking just before we got started. Uh, I was out comic hunting uh, yesterday and picked you up quite a bit of stuff, and uh, I saw some issues of Logan's Run in the. Uh, uh, I don't know if I saw any. Yeah, I did see some 50 cent boxes, but I, I forget. I went to several different shops. But anyway, I saw them in the cheap bins. But then I also saw the one you just mentioned, Logan's Run number six, up on the wall at a Coliseum of Comics in Orlando. Uh, and the only reason that one's up on the wall is because it's got that Thanos backup story in it. And it was, I want to say it was 90 bucks, which actually is fairly reasonable for what I have seen. Now, I'm not saying it's worth 90 bucks. I'm just saying. For the prices I have seen that thing going for lately, 90 bucks wasn't bad. And my first thought is maybe I should be selling mine. <laughs> you know, 90 bucks is really good. Yeah, I know. You know, I'm so torn. I mean, when it really hit the peak, you know, around the time that uh, Infinity War and Endgame were out, I was sorely tempted. And it's one of those things where 
you know, I don't want to break up the set. You know, I have the full run, but then at the same rate, you know, only the first five mean anything to me, you know? So yeah, I know I've, I've probably missed the boat on that. I probably should have done it. And I predict it's going to be one of those things where, you know, you, you might have to wait five, 10, 20 years, but it'll probably be back in the 50 cent bin again, one day again. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, but. that's, that's the same uh, story that I have for what if volume one, I had the complete run, you know, every, every issue, but then issue number 10 started going for so much money that I just felt it was worth breaking up the set. And, you know, I'll just wait until, till it's back in the $2 bins and I'll, I'll buy a new one. Uh, but I couldn't, I couldn't hang on to it just to keep the set complete when it was going for, and I'm not going to even uh, be embarrassed to say it was, it went for $200. So at that core, at that price, I was willing to break up the set and see what happens. I did that with, uh, with Batman adventures. Uh, I sold number 12, which is the first comic book appearance of Harley Quinn, but it's just so odd to me because it's not even an incontinuity appearance. It's just the first time she was ever in comics. Mm-hmm. And anyway, uh, that that book, I could actually today I could get much more for it than what I sold it for. But I couldn't believe it was selling for what it was selling for at the time I let it go. And I just couldn't I couldn't justify, as you say, just sitting on it, you know, while it was going for such crazy prices. So I sold it. And I only regret it only in the sense of it broke up a perfect set. You know, I had, with the exception of some of the stuff way later down the line, I had a complete run of the DC animated universe in comic books. I had all of, you know, Batman. I had all of Superman, Justice League, everything. And now I have that hole and it galls me to have the hole, you know, but it's one of those things, like I said, I'm just hoping that one of these days it'll be, you know, the, the analogy I always use is one day it'll be a Micronauts number one because that book, used, you couldn't touch that book when I was a kid. And then, you know, eventually I ended up finding it in a 50 cent bin somewhere. So hopefully that that'll be the case again one day and I can fill that run in. But well, that's that's more or less my thoughts is I dig into the, you know, the cheaper bins, the one dollar, the two dollar bins all the time. And if I see a copy of that, what if in there, I'll pick it up. But if I don't, I have to just try and say, you know what? I made a good profit on it. I don't collect for the purposes of making a big profit, but every once in a while, you know, it justifies other purchases when you can do that. Yep. It's a nice dividend regardless. Yeah. Whether you collect to speculate or not, it's, it's a nice dividend. Uh, every once in a while I'll go, wait a minute, the book's going for what? Yeah, I've got that. Let me get there, rid of it. Yeah. There are so many books out there that, that you hear people, you know, that the, the less, I guess the less sophisticated collector or the less knowledgeable collector said, Oh, I have this. And you know, the, the, the cliche is that, uh, they thought it was going to pay for the kid's college or whatever. Uh, <laughs> And, and and they're in 50 cent bins now. So for every one of the books that that happens for, uh, or for probably for every 50 of the books that that happens for, there's one that you didn't expect to be valuable, and it is. And the reality of it is, the reason books become more expensive is because you didn't think so. If everybody thought it was going to be valuable, there'd be a million of them out there. Yep. Because they would have bought them all when they first came out. There's uh there's several different comic book groups I belong to on Facebook and there was one not longer I couldn't tell you which one it was but there was one of them that asked that question what do you think the next hot book is and I really enjoyed that uh, thread or whatever you call it because it gave me a chance to peek at some you know books that yeah maybe maybe these are worth speculating on or you know maybe these will be the next hot ones but 
What's funny is not one single person predicted Star Wars number 42, which is now one of the hot books that's out there. And who knew? I mean, uh, you know, a month ago or, or maybe a little longer, uh, you know, say six months ago, I'm sure that was a 50 cent book. You know, I've, I'm sure I saw that in 50 cent boxes somewhere. Now it's up on the wall at comic shops. So you, you never know what's going to be hot. So yeah, it is true. <laughs> So, but in the meanwhile, we're going, we're going to do a book today that you can probably find in 50 cent bins. Pretty sure. Uh, yes. So we're covering Logan's run number four. We have made it to the halfway point of the series as a whole and to the penultimate chapter of the, uh, adaptation of the film. Uh, issue number four is cover dated April of, uh, 1977. Pretty monumental, uh, moment in time for me because that's when i turned nine years old the year that my life changed by seeing star wars uh the on sale date for this according to mike's amazing world of comics is uh january 18th of 1977 cover on it by george perez and Klaus jansen depicting box uh shooting at logan and logan's shooting at him and he's uh box is saying your escape ends here runner with your death, which is not a scene that's in the film at all, but it's it's still pretty cool. The original cover price on this was 30 cents. Story is entitled Enter the Eternal Ice World of Box. Uh, author, uh, that's how he's listed, is David Kraft. Now, this is David Anthony Kraft, who was later famous for uh, Comics Interview Magazine, which was a pretty cool mag back in the day. Uh, artist is George Perez. Inker and colorist is Klaus Jansen. Letterer is Irv Watanabe. And editor on this was Archie Goodwin. In the 23rd century, Logan and Jessica, soaking wet and freezing, are bid welcome and enter into the eternal ice world of Box, a massive, vaguely humanoid automaton. Jessica wonders if this can really be sanctuary, and Logan speculates that it must be. But where are the others? Where are all the other runners who made it this far? Logan demands answers from Box, and the mechanical being says that they will be joining the others soon enough and asks them to follow. He offers them warm, dry furs to wear in exchange for their wet clothing, and despite Jessica's revulsion at actually donning dead animal skins, the pair strip and change into them. Box, impressed with them, tells Logan that he is a sculptor and that he'd like to sculpt them, that they will be his masterpiece. Logan, however, insists on seeing the others first. Box capitulates and takes them to a massive frozen cavern where Logan and Jessica gaze in horror upon row after row of young men and women, all encased in ice, all frozen, alive. How did this happen, Logan cries, and Box replies that it is all part of his job and the regular food storage procedure. The fish, plankton, greens, and protein from the sea stopped coming, and the humans started coming. So he began storing them instead. Box continues to ramble on, almost oblivious of the real live Logan and Jessica, as he begins using his tools to carve and sculpt a great block of ice. Jessica, still reeling from this discovery, stands and stares at their fellow runners, now forever stilled. So this is sanctuary, she says. All these people defied the ritual of last day, refused to face flame out at Carousel, and became runners instead, only to wind up here, just as dead as if they'd been caught and terminated by a Sandman. Logan tells her that he's sorry that he ever got her into this, 
but she responds that he shouldn't be. She's glad they're together, even like this. Even dead? Logan asks. He means to freeze us, you know, just like the others. Not giving up, not surrendering to Box's cold intentions, Logan and Jessica throw off their furs and swiftly change back into the tattered remnants of their clothes, as Box distractedly admires his own handiwork, an ice statue of Logan and Jessica clutching each other in a lover's embrace. Coming back to himself, Box realizes what a pity it is that only he will be able to truly appreciate his work of art since even this pair of pretty humans must ultimately be frozen as well. Box reaches for his ice gun to do the job, but Logan, a trained Sandman, is far more maneuverable and spry than the awkward clunky Box and hits the middle being dead center with a blast from his own deadly weapon. Logan fires again and again, causing damage to both Box and his icy home, ultimately bringing about its complete destruction, burying Box's frozen world forever as Logan and Jessica flee its collapse. Forging ahead, they emerge into an environment completely foreign to them. Grass, hills, trees, birds in flight, clouds, and a big, warm, bright circle in the sky. We must be outside of the dome, Logan declares. I never dreamed, never imagined, says Jessica, it would be like this. Together, alive, hopeful that perhaps others did make it beyond Box's domain, Logan and Jessica set out to explore this strange, beautiful new world. Along the way, as well as encountering new sights, experiences, and creatures, the pair find themselves developing affection for each other and a shared determination to eventually find the elusive sanctuary. Along with these new discoveries, Jessica also awakens one day to find that the life clocks each of them wear in the palm of their right hand have turned clear. They're free. Meanwhile, back in the cave, Box, dying, sputters and mumbles to himself as his mechanical life fades. He is observed by Francis Seven, still very much alive and more determined than ever to find his ex-partner and slay him. Logan and Jessica continue to explore their new surroundings, wandering without any real direction or purpose save finding sanctuary. They eventually find themselves drawn by a massive obelisk, cracked and overgrown, that calls to them like a beacon. Some kind of man-made monument, says Logan. Maybe it's a marker to show us the way to sanctuary. Making their way deeper into the overgrown ruins, they find themselves surrounded by much smaller monuments, gravestones, and a long-forgotten cemetery, and mystified by the meaning of the words and dates inscribed on each one. Finally, they come upon the strangest sight of all, an enormous statue of a stately, somber-looking man seated upon a huge marble throne. Jessica and Logan speculate as to what happened to all the people and what they were like. Seeing Lincoln, Logan says, that must be one of them. They looked almost like us, she says, except I've never seen a face quite like that before. That must be the look of being old, Jessica. It is an alien look to these refugees from a society that doesn't allow its citizens to live beyond the age of 30. Do you think that's why he seems so sad, Logan? Because he's old? Determined to find someone, anyone, who can answer their questions, they push on, eventually coming to the long-abandoned U.S. Capitol building. There! That must be sanctuary! Making their way inside, Logan tells Jessica that he's come to believe that perhaps they really are the first ones to make it beyond Box's world, that perhaps there is no sanctuary at all. Hearing a noise, they make their way cautiously into the ruins of the U.S. Senate chamber, where they are first startled by a cat 
a creature unknown to them, then by the sight of many, many cats, and a white-haired, craggy-faced old man using the senate gavel to crack open nuts. Cautiously, the pair approach the old man. They introduce themselves to him, but he doesn't seem to be able to recall his own name. Logan asks if this is sanctuary, but the old man doesn't seem to understand the word. Jessica asks if the lines in his face hurt and if she may touch them. The old man, actually a very gentle and sweet soul, says, please do. Asked if he's all alone here, the old man replies, hardly, I have all these cats. Logan and Jessica, perplexed, ask the old man how long he's lived here and how old is he, but don't get much in the way of a straight answer. And they are stunned to discover that the old man's palms are bare. He does not have a life clock. They continue to question the old man, finally asking if they can stay here, that they'd like to rest a while. Of course, this place belongs to the people. What people? All the people. It's written somewhere around here, you know. The old man toddles off, absentmindedly quoting T.S. Eliot. Logan tells Jessica that he thinks that they should settle here, make a home, along with the old man. Jessica wants to keep going, keep searching, until they find sanctuary. Logan has become convinced that sanctuary doesn't exist. It never existed. Jessica begins to cry, and the old man reappears and tries to cheer her up by showing her an old locket with pictures of his family, his mother and father, and himself as a younger man. She is stunned to find he actually knew his mother. The old man steers Logan to some other old, larger pictures in the chamber. Cycling through the portraits of long-dead former presidents, Logan asks if they're family too, but the old man says no, that he never knew any of them at all. They're all old men. Jessica, alone and lost in thought, gazing at the pictures in the locket and thinking about how the old man actually knew his parents, is suddenly grabbed from behind by unseen hands. Back in the Senate chamber, Logan makes a discovery. Hey, he shouts, holding up a portrait of Abraham Lincoln. I've seen this face before. Isn't he the one we saw on our way here, Jessica? Jess? Where did she go? She was right behind me just a minute ago. A call from above causes Logan to look up, up into the gallery on the upper level, where Jessica is held silent with a Sandman's weapon pointed at her temple. Francis. Logan, stunned to see his former friend and colleague alive, asks why he's doing this. They're all free now. Doesn't Francis see that? And besides, why not let Jessica go? This is between the two of them. No, it isn't, Logan. It's a matter of principle. She led you astray, turned my best friend into a rebel. Well, I'm still a loyal Sandman, Logan, and I swore that I'd terminate you. Both. Next, end run, the final chapter. It, it bears mentioning that uh, this book, I, I lined it up with the movie. It's, it starts at the one hour and six minute point of the movie and it ends at the one hour and 33 point in the movie so this that you know noting that made me realize that this book is pretty well distributed throughout the movie they broke up the story you know fairly well uh you know half an hour increments um or not quite half an hour for the first three because you had to do some more setup on there but you know, like I said, about a half an hour of the movie is in the uh, fourth book, which is pretty cool. Uh, what do you think of the cover? It's not one of my favorites. 
I like it. Um, my overall grade for it is, is ultimately going to be a B because I, I love how Box looks. I think he looks really cool. I like the the kind of star pattern on his. Well, it's not quite a star. It's it's like a crystal. It's like a crystal cross or something on his on his chest, like a big X essentially on his chest is red, and somehow that looks really cool. It really stands out. So I think he looks really good, but everything else on the cover is very, what I call stereotypical Jansen. Mm-hmm. And and I'll, I'll be talking more about that a, a little bit later, uh, you know, when we get more to the review process of this. So I, I like it. It's not my least favorite cover, um, but it's not my favorite cover either. <laughs> See, I think that the mistake on this cover is the dark blue background. Now, I know it's not supposed to be the brightest area in the world, but it is an, an ice area. So I feel like it should be much more shiny and glittery. And yes. it's shown here as being more uh, almost noir. It's, you know, it's a dark feeling. Uh, and I don't think that that really gets across the feeling that we want to have from this or the feeling that we should have from this. Like I said, it should be shinier. It should be brighter. Uh, Otherwise, I'm kind of okay with it. I'm really not so much disturbed by the inking as I am by the coloring. Yeah. I kind of wonder if, uh, you know, he's listed as inker and colorist inside. I wonder if Jansen colored this cover, too. Well, I, I think he probably did. And I think Jansen had a tendency to go or has a tendency. I mean, he still works um, with more of the muted, dark film noir type feeling. And overall, I kind of have been happy with his his inking in this series. And, you know, to get ahead of myself a little bit, I'm pretty happy with the inking and the inside of the story. But I just feel like the coloring on the cover is, is kind of a mistake because it falls, as you said, into prototypical uh, Jansen. Well, while we're on that subject, uh, I'm skipping ahead a bit in my notes, but it, you just put me in mind of it. I don't know if you read the letters page for this particular issue, but... Um, I was thinking about this recently. I was listening to recent episodes of our show and we had covered I'm trying to remember what it was. I think it was when we covered creatures on the loose recently and you and I were so critical of Jansen over Perez. And then we started on this and I feel like we've both been, been very praising uh, of this team up. Although we did both mention that, you know, we wouldn't naturally think of these two together, but here they are and we really like it. If I remember right in, in the first episode of the Logan's run retrospective, I think we did make exactly that comment that we had just said how critical we were of them together. Uh, but that, you know, we have to retract that. And, you know, it's something that's just for whatever reason, these things come up often uh, in bunches. And of late, I find in a lot of recordings, there's things coming up that turn me into a podcasting hypocrite where I yep. say one thing yeah. and then I'm, I'm forced to conclude something different as we go on. But in, in, in this instance, yeah, I, I think the combination of Perez and Jansen in this series really surprises me because I wouldn't think it would work. Uh, much like, uh, honestly, you know, Jansen, I think, is a very specific talent and he needs to be with very specific people. You know, we've talked about how uh, his his inking over over Sal Buscema on uh, the Defenders is excellent. Uh, right. You know, for better or for worse, his his inking matched the feeling that Frank Miller was going for. And, you know, most people love it. 
Uh, I'm not thrilled with his inking on John Romita Jr., although people love that. Uh, you know, but I think it's very talent specific. And I remember before he passed away, uh, uh, Rich Buckler, I had a, a discussion with him and I had not realized because uh, Klaus Jansen came up and I said, oh, I would be interested in seeing Klaus Jansen's inks on your work. Uh, but I don't think that ever happened. And he was like, oh, no, it did. It was in uh, uh, the Jungle Action Black Panther series. Right. And I looked at right. that. And, and that surprised me, actually, as well, because it was a better combo than I anticipated. Right. So, you know, but he, but he's very uh, – his, his my critique of his work is very much aligned with who's, who he's inking because his style is right. very overpowering and – it has to match up in the right way. Uh, normally, it would not be a good combo, I don't think at all, to have him overpowering George Perez because I think so highly of Perez's art, which is very different. But in this instance, for the most part, I've been pretty happy with it here, which, again, it's, it surprises me, but it's the case. <laughs> well, I, was, oh, I thought oh, it was... Oh, my God. Oh, we have to welcome oh, Dr. Bill to the oh show. Oh, my God. Oh. Uh. Where you the been running? Up, the Weight Watcher men were after me. <laughs> Get back here, Walker. <laughs> Actually, I started Weight Watchers Sunday, and today's Wednesday. You've lost 30 so, pounds. No, I've lost six. That's pretty wow. fast. That's great. How many points are you well, allowed a day? I'm allowed... Uh, well, they gave me 40, <laughs> 41 to start. And then um, I've been curved down to, I've been curved down to like 40, 40 or 39, I think, so, so, something like that. So well, good luck, my weight, my, friend. my weight started at 291. That's what I was when I weighed. So. Well, the quarantine has not done me any favors on my uh, weight loss <laughs> program, because I'm home too often with temptation to eat, and the gym that I go to is closed. So mm. it's not a good combination. Yeah, it was starting but to affect I hear you. That is not the conversation overall for today's show, but good no. luck to you, Dr. Bill. I'm very happy that you're uh, you're going to be healthy and wealthy and wise. Well, well, you'll like, be healthy. <laughs> yeah. My wife uh, baked a fresh batch of cookies over the weekend. I was like, what are you doing to me? What are you doing? <laughs> you're tearing me apart. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right, so... Uh, we didn't get too far into the book itself, Bill. We just really talked about the cover to this point. Uh, oh, Scott, okay. Scott did the synopsis, and we've discussed the cover at this point. Oh, good, so I could do my gag for page two. Okay. All right. Go ahead. Oh, have you already got to page two? Well, we're, we're about to cover page one. Uh, the only note I've got on this is I thought green was, a, was an odd choice for the... Well, I was going to say for frozen animals, I, there seems to be a, a disparity or, or I want to see what you guys think between this and the movie, because in the movie, I always had the impression that everything you saw in there was the the real creature frozen, like like boxes, birds that he goes on about in the movie. I thought they My were real birds. birds. <laughs> yeah, just frozen. But here he's talking about sculpting uh -huh. things. So I'm a little confused. I kind of wonder if maybe david craft was confused or one of the other things i liked about the letters or yeah the letters page in here is that he goes in a little bit into explaining the process of writing this adaptation 
And he does say that he was working from the screenplay. And, and as we often have said about Marvel adaptations, one of the things we liked was what we call the DVD extras. He's kind of saying the same thing, that some of the scenes are padded out because that's how they were in the screenplay. But then they were cut from the film or whatever. And he likes going by the actual screenplay. So I'm wondering, you know, it, this stuff like where Box wants to sculpt them and all that, was that part of the screenplay that just didn't make it into the movie? I, I'm I'm just confused on that. But anyway, my, my note was that green was an odd color for, for iced animals. I just thought that was – it does look kind of odd. It's equally yeah. odd for sculpted ice creatures. Either way with looking right. at ice, you know. <laughs> right. You know what they say. Yeah. Don't eat the green ice. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I got to think that the, the choice to make the creatures green uh, was because if they had made them ice-like, uh, they'd just blend in with the background. You know what it would right. look like? Mm-hmm. Honestly, do you, as a kid, did you ever do like one of those, like I, I think it would be like in Highlights magazines or whatever, where they have the grid with all sorts of lines converging on each other yes. and you have to find the drawings within them? Mm-hmm. That's what I yeah. think this would look like if yeah. you made these creatures the color of the ice, because you have the, uh, you know, the ice poles there, and you have the ice on the ground, you have the ice on the ceiling. Uh, I, th- I think it would just be too much of that color, so they had to come up with something else. And I'm not right. sure. I, I can't. I, I while I agree with you that it's an odd choice, I can't in my mind come up with a color where I think, oh, this would have worked. They should have done this. So I accept the choice that they made, even though I don't think it looks perfect. I think the ones in the foreground that have the duo shade on them, I think if they were just white with the duo shade and and the way that they're inked, you know, with the with the the reflective element to them, I think that that it might have worked if they were just pure white. But I don't know. You, well, you could they be... look a little. They look a little more metallic than ice-like. But then, yeah. when you look at box, box looks very metallic. So yeah, I don't know. Uh, what was your note for, uh, for page two, Bill? It's nice to see Destro giving us the yo-jo thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> I think box looks more believable in this than he did in the movie. The special yeah. effects on box yes. in the movie were very uh, primitive. As far as special Thank effects you. go. Thank you, because that, that was one of my notes, was uh, I think Box comes off so much better visually uh, here than in the film, where he tends to be, quite honestly, one of the cheesier and clumsier and more dated aspects of the film. Uh, I love the character, but every, t- every, every time I've watched it recently he's one of the more cringeworthy parts, I have to be honest. However, I like movie boxes dialogue a lot better than I like his dialogue here. He's just, he, he seems more wacky eccentric in the movie. And there's something about that, that I really like. Well, maybe that's due to, isn't that what Roscoe Lee Brown? Yeah. Oh, his, his, his voice is great. I love his he, voice. He has a great voice. Um, yeah. He voiced box in the film. Um, for us nerds, he's probably best remembered as uh, the narrator of the old Story of Star Wars album, and he was also the voice of the Kingpin on uh, the 90s Spider-Man cartoon. So if his voice sounds familiar to you, that's probably what it's from. As a big John Wayne fan, he was Mr. I believe his name was Nightlinger, 
in the movie The Cowboys. Yeah, he's got that cool song, Night Linger. (laughs) 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 Well, I I can't help but wonder if this whole ice sculpture thing might have something to do with the soundtrack, because the track for Box's sequence of the film on the album. Now, I don't know how far back the album actually goes, but anyway, on the soundtrack is called Ice Sculpture. So it may have something to do with the with the shooting script and the screenplay and all that. I don't know. It's just that is a part that I found kind of weird in this. I'm looking at his dialogue a little bit. And in the movie, while visually he doesn't look as truly robotic as you'd want him to and he does have more of that look here in the co- in the comic dialogue wise as you mentioned i thought he felt more robotic in the movie than he does here here he it's, it's almost like he's having a casual conversation in the movie it felt more like like he was almost oblivious to them and he was just babbling on yes yes whereas yeah. you know like like you know it was, it was more like he was programmed uh here here he actually seems to be having a conversation and I kind of, you know, I kind of like him better when he just seems oblivious to everything that's going on about him, and and he just keeps right, you know, ranting and raving. So I, I, I you know, I'm, I'm, I go back and forth as to which characterization I prefer. I, I think, you know, again, just to be beating a dead horse, uh, I like the look better in the uh, comic. I like the dialogue and sound and voice characterization better in the movie. Yeah, I can, I totally 100% agree. Yeah, there's a lot of great dial. I mean, a lot of the, the more quoted lines from the movie are box lines. And so many of those great lines from the movie are not a part of this adaptation. He, he has uh, almost completely different dialogue in this. He doesn't, you know, he doesn't do the... Uh, what is, what is, I'm trying to remember the line. Does he say awesome? Am I not? Or what is the impress? I think he says impressive, impressive. Am I not? Or something to that effect. And, you know, where he talks about, you know, being that he is uh, a, a, a kind of a blending of man and machine, you know, that's not in here. So overwhelming. That was the quote overwhelming. Am I not? Yeah. I like that part. He's just, I, I don't know. His, his dialogue's just more fun, frankly, in the, in the original movie, but. What's what's the line he repeats over and over again? Fish, plankton, sea greens, and proteins from the sea. He says something similar in this, but it's not like a it's not like a mantra like it is in the film, which I really I like. There's actually I saw this not long ago on one of those like I don't know, like Tea Public or something, but there's actually a shirt out there that says that. That's all it says. It, it's like four different lines on the shirt, and it says "fish, plankton, sea greens, proteins from the sea" on the shirt. And I was like, that would be a great shirt for a con. Well, you, you want to see how many people recognize it and know what it is. Yeah, definitely. Yep. But but and again, like you said, it's like a mantra because he repeats it over and over again, which which makes him seem more robotic. Yep. Now on that subject, a question I've always had about this sequence both of the film and the adaptation now he mentions here page three that the bottom panel which by the way in the film all the people that are frozen are nude but i'm sure they couldn't get away with that here he says you know this box talking he says regular storage procedures are the same as the other food and the line is very similar in the film so my question has always been 
the humans show up there. He freezes them. But is that the end of the process? He's just freezing them for, for storage? Or are they now a part of the city's food system? Like, ah, in other words, have, have like soil people and cream. in the yeah, exactly. Have have the citizens been unwittingly eating unaccounted for runners all this time and, and nobody knew it but Box? I don't think that's ever established. I think you can make that assumption if you choose, but I don't think they really ever say that intentionally. I kind of always got the impression that Box was supposed to be saving these foods for the runners and somehow exceeded his programming and started freezing the runners because the other stuff became unavailable to him. Well, wait, isn't box a part of the city or is he like, he's not there for the runners to give them food. They never explain early, unless I missed it. They never explain why he's there or who put him there. Yeah, no, they really, he, he states that it's his job to freeze the, the foodstuffs, but yeah, who he's working for, what, what ultimate, Box could have been. For. He might not even be a part of the city. This could have been some other system that broke down before the rest of yep. society kind of fell apart. This could have been a fish processing plant, for all we know. Just because of where he's located, I assume that he was not part of the city's system. Mm. Yeah, he's some sort of weird relic of somewhere between the the apocalypse and you know what is now the city. Yeah, some sort of you know missing time link between the two or something. Yeah. He, Here's my headcanon on it, and it's not, you know, there's nothing official about this other than my no-prizing it out, is that he was part of the uh, the pre-existing system, and then the runners were using him to save food for other runners, and they screwed up in how they set him up, and then he started freezing runners <laughs> as food. That's my headcanon on it. Sounds good. One thing I noticed here, page six, the panel right in the middle of the page Logan is looking right at it, so he has to notice this. The number of the frozen human right there, 1056, isn't that the number of unaccounted for runners that computer gave him in the first issue? Yeah. Which means he's he's frozen every runner that hasn't gotten away, that hasn't been uh, eliminated by Sandman. Right. So now Logan knows, I, I would think without a doubt, that nobody's made it beyond this point. No runner has made it. So now they're all accounted for. Yet they don't seem or, you know, craft, I should say, as the author doesn't seem to really follow up on that point because later on he and Jessica continue to have a conversation about sanctuary, you know, and, and about finding others. And it seems to me that he should point this out to her that, look, there, there are no nobody's made it. You know, there, there may or may not be any real sanctuary, but nobody has made it out because we found all the unaccounted for runners in Box's ice cave. And it's just weird to me that he, you know, there's never that conversation. Did you notice the Kirby crackle in uh, Box's mouth on page, was it page 11? As the ice cave is, is caving in, he looks very Ultron-like right there. I like that. with the He's got Kirby crackle in his mouth, but then he's also got Kirby crackle-like around his chest where he's, I guess he's been blasted or something. I thought that was really cool. Kirby crackles. Sounds like a delicious snack. <laughs> Sounds like a breakfast cereal. Blow your head off. If he, if he was able to stop every runner 
that came before him. Shouldn't the battle against Logan have been just slightly more epic? Well, maybe they don't. Well, they don't have guns. Oh, wait. Yeah. Oh, you mean what? Box should have been a little bit more agile and. It should have been a little bit more of a boss battle than it was. Okay. Well, well, yeah, but he's but he's a Sandman. He's got a weapon. Yeah. This, there's, yeah, there's never this, been a Sandman runner before, so you've got these people that these others he, were not armed. Right, they're they're thinking, oh, we made it. This is you know he's here to help us. Wow, you know. Whereas this this goes, see Scott, this is your ultimate defense of your of your stance, saying you have a gun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I have a gun, and I'm going to use it. <laughs> so ultimately, he freezes them all in carbonite. <laughs> yeah. Now, one thing I noticed is the squash and stretch nature of playing with, with time dilation and stretching out time and everything, You know, the nature of that with the adaptation here is a little weird because it felt to me like the box sequence was a lot longer than it should have been based on how much screen time it actually gets in the film. I mean, it goes for the first. Well, it goes to page 11, yeah. But then the sequence of Logan and Jessica outside and finding each other and falling in love and discovering that their their life clocks have gone clear is one page. Now, granted, it's kind of a montage page. But it's one page, and I, I don't know how long that sequence runs in the film, but it's it's got to be, I would say, at least half as long as the, the entire box sequence. So it's weird that they spread the box sequence out, but then crunch this to just one page. And I can only assume because, you know, this is 70s comics that tended to you know emphasize action above all else, you know, especially over romance. So, you know, they're, they're giving short shrift to the love story in order, in order to give you, you know, an exciting action sequence, you know, with fighting and shooting and stuff like that. I don't know. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think that in the movie, you, they showed us, uh, you know, what, what went on between them. Whereas here, you know, you, you put a montage scene, which, you know, you can quickly do it. Uh, and you also have some, you know, caption boxes where they're explaining what's going on. I don't think it required multiple pages, and I think, you know, it would – see, you know, you, you said, you know, that the comics would want to emphasize it. I think if the comics didn't emphasize it, it would be a boring sequence. If they if they had spent three pages or four pages on this, I, I, I don't think it would have captivated you. Right. Unless you were showing them stripping down like you do in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I wouldn't want them to give it, you know, more than it needs, but I, I felt like their love story deserved a little bit more than just, you know, being explained in a, you know, in a caption box, you know, a, a developing affection for each other. Well, that that's it. Because in the end, I just found is... their, their little budding romance was charming. I, I felt like they really did have a chemistry between the two of them. And I, I liked finding, you know, them kind of coming together, you know, and discovering each other. And you don't really get that from this. Although I, I think she has fallen for him faster and a little more obviously in the adaptation than she does in the film. So maybe that's where, you know, they made up for it or something. Kids don't want to read about, you know, ah, the kissing. Eh, that's exactly, romance you know, Exactly. <laughs> you know, action, right. action. So the life clocks turn clear. Do you think that, Either it's one of two things. Either they're out of range of the city or they just turn clear once you they 
beyond a certain date. Like once they you get beyond, they go clear anyway. Mm, she's not there. I don't think she's there yet. Yeah, she's not that old yet. His oh. his clock got advanced, but hers didn't. Okay, I forgot that. Yeah. Okay, all right then. Then it is I, I, You know, they they never explain to you exactly how these life clocks work, but. Again, you got to headcanon it a little bit. I'm thinking there's some sort of a, a, a centralized system that's kind of making these things go, because if there wasn't, the computer wouldn't have been able to advance Logan's the way it does. Or at least, again, there's no headcanon on it. So I, they're I out think, of range of the Wi-Fi. Yeah, I think they're, they're out of the range well, of the, the city Wi-Fi. Well, I used to think it was a range thing, but also when they go back into the city, spoilers, but when they go back into the city later, uh, they do not resume their colors. They stay clear because in well, both... they're off. They're off the grid now. Yeah, they yeah, would have to they, reboot. They went off. They lost the connection. They're not going to, you know, they're not going to automatically sync back up. They would need to reboot. The Wi-Fi password got changed while they were out. Okay. <laughs> oh shit! I can't get in. Oh, <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, I really like page. So it's, this is where it's weird again because. You know, like I say, page 14, you know, that's several minutes of the film compressed into one page. But then page 15 is really just a short little segment of the film, yet it takes up a whole page. But I really like it where, you know, we see that Francis didn't die in the last issue and uh, and he's still pursuing them. I really like this sequence, especially the way it's drawn and everything, although... I, I do miss from the film where Francis has a reaction to, you know, seeing the sun for the first time. We don't really get that here. He's more, you know, his thoughts are more on, you know, pursuing Logan and, you know, his duty and all that. You know, he doesn't seem to really have a reaction to the sun, which is kind of a shame because I always like that moment of the film. Well, this is it's the following day. So it's so it's it's only been like one day. Right. Perez drew it. If if Kraft had put the, the thought balloon a little differently, you could have had. Uh, yeah. You know, you you could have had that sequence, and I think it could. I think it does lose a little something as well, by way of effect, except for the fact that they want to make Francis seem very very single minded. At least you know, I, yeah. I think they present him that way in the movie too. But he he's driven. He's it's almost like he's not even noticing it, even though. Perez drew it that he is. I think his portrayal in the film is is a little more conflicted, I guess would be the best way to put it. I mean, while he does stick to his mission and, you know, there's we see the fight and all of that, you know, in the film, I, I think there was a chance for Francis in the film that the comic doesn't quite go for, but we'll talk more about that next uh next issue. This two-page spread, page 16 and 17, is awesome. This is the sort of thing that makes stories like this for me. I mean, I am a total sucker for post-apocalyptic futures with overgrown monuments. And this is my, you know, probably my favorite part of this whole film is where, you know, they discover, you know, completely overgrown and abandoned Washington, D.C., you know, with the Washington Monument and, uh, you know, the, the Lincoln Memorial. And all. I love this part. Now you can't tell from this page though if it's if it's Lincoln or if it's uh, Tim Roth, as as uh, I forget what it, what his chimpanzee right. name was. Fade. <laughs> uh, Fade. Yes. Yeah. Now, hopefully, I will remember to do this when we post this episode up. I'll, I'll share it with you guys here in a little bit. But somewhere online, I found the original pencil and the inked black and white pages of this spread and it's it's glorious 
in uh, in just black and white. It's it's really really cool looking. But yeah, this this is a beautiful piece of art. I, I love this. This would have been really cool as uh, as one of those oversized like treasury editions. Uh, I it's, it's a shame it didn't get produced that way. That would be so cool, especially this particular sequence. I just love the art in this sequence. This is the type of uh, of adaptation that would have been presented in an oversized issue too. Yeah, it's funny. You know, it it only ever got this one printing. It's weird. You know, now that I think about it, not only didn't it get the treasury size, it didn't get well. Did uh, the Marvel Comics the uh, what do you call those the you know where they did like the Beatles and Kiss the mag the magazine sized. Was that around yet when, when this was published? I think it was. Because I know they did a number of movies in that format. Yeah, because they did like Meteor with uh, with Sean Connery. They did Jaws 2. You know, there's a whole bunch of movies they did. You know, Empire, uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. So it's just, it's odd that this is the only way that this was ever presented is in this mini. You know, that they didn't collect it and put it out, you know, all together. You know, like Star Wars had so many printings and all, but I don't know. It's just kind of. Well, that would be Marvel Preview Magazine, uh, which the first issue of that was cover dated July of '75. Well, the one I was thinking of was, it's often you often see it like in uh, like like in the um, Overstreet. They always forget the word comics, but it's it was called Marvel like Super Special or Super Spectacular or something like that. Is the one I'm thinking of. Because they did, like, Close Encounters. Marvel Super Special, the first issue was the Kiss issue. Yes, that's the one. Which I'm... has a 1977 cover date. Oh. Uh, but it doesn't have a month. So it, yeah, so it was just getting, it was either just getting started or hadn't started yet when uh, when this came. Okay, that, that kind of makes sense, I guess. So when they see Abe Lincoln, I guess he was partying all night. He's got, a like, a Roman wreath on his head. <laughs> it was a rough night. <laughs> and also, I'm sorry, the side. Okay, so they show the Capitol building. Eh, maybe they shouldn't have that. Like, they've got the same type vine on the Capitol that was on Abe's head. You know how big that would have to be? <laughs> Come on, man. All right, all right. That, that's yeah. a nitpick. That's a nitpick. I'm picturing, I'm picturing uh, Beauregard, uh, Sulu's pet uh, plant, whatever <laughs> thing it was in, in yeah, yeah. plant in. in uh, Right. And trap. Mm. That was never seen again. So I'm just I'm picturing them all being alive. Yes. Uh, the, uh, I, I like the sequence with the old man. I feel like it's very, very comparable to the movie. Yeah. You know, I, I, I don't I don't see a tremendous distinction between them, uh, you know, the between the experiences of reading it or seeing it. Either way, I kind of found it, it to be well presented. So for some reason, the old man, when I started to, re to read this, when we were discussing this, for some reason, I always confuse the actor who plays the old man. Now, the actor in the movie that plays the old man is Peter Houstonoff. For right. some reason, I always think it's Patrick Patrick Troughton who played the second doctor because Patrick Troughton played an old man in one of the Sinbad movies from like the late 70s or 80s. And it was like in the same exact makeup. So when I started to read this, I'm picturing Patrick Troughton and I'm like, yeah, that was him. And then I go and read the IMD. I'm like, no, that was Peter Houston off you idiot. How many times in your life are you going to screw this up? <laughs> Wrong. A few more. <laughs> I like on, uh, in page 26, it's the sixth panel 
Jessica actually explains the life clocks to the old man, which doesn't happen in the film. He he tells them that he wants one, and she, either she or Logan, I forget, one of them says, well, that's just not possible, and he he's kind of like, well, that's just not fair, or something to that effect, whereas here they give him a reason why he doesn't want one. Uh, so I, I kind of like that difference between the two. That's pretty much all I've got on this. I, I love the cliffhanger ending where Francis shows up. I think, you know, if you, if you've got to cut it, you know, if you've got to go to commercial, then that's, that's a, that's a perfect cliffhanger spot with this. So when I came in, you guys were talking about Klaus Janssen inking over Paris. Yeah. Klaus. Klaus. And I have to say my comment on it is that like, if this was Paris Austin or Paris with other inkers, the characters look a certain way, right? Like there's still that underlying Perez-ness, I guess we could say. That is here as well, but for some reason, like the last panel of on the last page, the detail, it looks very realistic. Yeah. It's, you know, you know, with the lines and the eyebrows and, uh, you know, like, is that Perez or is that, is that Jansen? I mean, the, there's a lot um i don't know i think he brings like a different take on perez like the way uh, the old man looks too he looks very weathered and and wrinkled like like there's a lot of detail there either perez put it there but jansen didn't either added to it or didn't wipe it out i would be curious to see the pencils like like you were saying they may be available if mm. you look hard enough uh you know we've seen some pencil work from these books available on the internet so I, I haven't seen that particular page but i wouldn't be shocked if you could find it i'd have to go i have a whole folder on this stuff somewhere i don't think anything that i have has just the pencils i think everything is penciled and inked but, but i i definitely see where you're going for because one of my notes on this you know as far as the the, the artwork goes is uh I, you know, I still really love it. I think it looks really nice. But I think in this particular issue, uh, I, I do think the inks are heavier than they have been in the prior issues. And I think that this one's a little bit more stereotypical Jansen, or, or at least what I think of when I think of Klaus Jansen. I, I think of him, you know, often imposing his style over, you know, whoever the given penciler is. And it's not throughout the whole issue in this, but I noticed that the, the further this goes in the issue, the heavier the ink seem to get. So by the by the last few pages is really where I noticed it, like with, you know, the page you were talking about with the old man, page 23 and beyond. It does look more much more Jansen-y to me uh, with the inks and just a heavier line. So by the time you get to that last page, yeah, there's a lot of Klaus Jansen in that. I don't want to say he's completely overwhelming Perez. I don't think he is, but uh, yeah, his, his style seems to be much more imposed uh, by the end of this issue. So yeah, I'll, I'll agree with you there, but I still like it. I still think it works well. I see what you're saying about the heavier Jansen inks, but I think it's, there's an, you know, an inconsistency and I hate to use the word inconsistent only because I think that implies a change in quality. I don't think there's a real change in quality, but I think there is a change in presentation. Uh, so it's a little inconsistent. I think throughout the box sequence, it's kind of what we've gotten up to this point. I don't think you're seeing a lot of, lot of difference as far as the inking goes. Then I think when they get out uh, into the montage page, 
I, I think that kind of presents it also in a, in a uh, it's a little darker, a little bit more of a thick line than you expect on Perez, but I don't think it's particularly Jansen. I think it's the next page. I think when, when Francis makes his appearance, that's when we start getting a little darker and heavier on the inks. And it, it goes back and forth because then the pages with the monuments and everything, I don't think look like that. But then after that, when, uh, when they get to the old man, I do think it again. So it's a little inconsistent. And I'm thinking it was actually a choice by Jansen as to which pages he felt required a heavier hand than the others. Uh, and whether or not that was justified or not, I can't say because I can't see what it would look like otherwise. But quality wise, I'm still, I, you know, while I think the inking is inconsistent, I feel the quality is consistent. I don't, I don't, I'm not jarred by the inconsistency and I'm not changing my grade based on the inconsistency. Speaking of grades, unless we have anything else, are we ready to grade this one? All right. Uh, the cover, uh, you know, we talked about it. It's, it's not not my favorite of the Logan's Run covers. Just looking at, at Logan with the rip in his shirt, he could be Black Adam. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I, think, I think it's still good. It still gets across what you're going to get in the issue. I don't know. If, if you didn't have issues one through three, I don't know that this would make you pick it up. But I still think it's pretty good. So I'm going to just say a straight B on the cover. The interior art, I still think we're looking at art that is of a very high level. Uh, you know, we talked about the slight inconsistencies in the inking, but I don't think that really brings us down. And I think some of the page, some of the images with the heavy inking are still really, really good. Like, for example, that very last page, I think, is really, really good. And it's got the heavy inking on it. I'm going to say an A- minus on the art. Uh, and story-wise, you know, adaptation-wise, I think Kraft does a good job. His dialogue is, for the most part, on the money, uh, and his his captions kind of bring across whatever he can't do in the dialogue boxes. So I'm going to say an A minus on that also, and I'm going to give the book overall a B plus. I got one little quibble on the cover. So if you took the motions lines out of Logan. It might just look like he's stepping on Jenny. <laughs> Excuse me. <laughs> and that one lady in the background looks like she could be nude, but I think it's just the coloring they used. I think she's drawn nude, but they colored her to make make. They did colorization to make them look like they're not, because the guy in the, the, the closest to the front is doesn't, doesn't appear to have any clothing on. He's really enjoying whatever's going on in there too. <laughs> uh -huh. I'm gonna give this cover a. It's it it's okay. Uh, I'm gonna give it a B minus. Uh, the interior art. Now nah, I have no no quibbles or qualms here. I mean, it does change a little. Like like you said, like once they you know yeah it does kind of like once they get out of the they get to the outside it kind of gets a little bit heavier. It looks like with the inking or maybe that's just to convey a difference in the world. Perhaps um, I'm going to give it a a and the story, the story's an a as well. So, uh, you know, a minus B plus in that range. Cool. I really like the cover on this one, but I have some issues with it. Uh, the biggest one being, you know, what Paul said, it's, it's too dark. Uh, I think if they lightened it up and made it feel more like an ice cave or an ice world, uh, I think also the choice of stereotypical Buck Rogers ray gun for box is an odd one. I think if he had a freeze gun, uh, it would make it 
tie in with the cover better. You'd get more of a sense of what's going on here and what the peril is and everything. But that said, Box himself looks really cool. Um, this may be the best illustration of, of Box in the whole book, honestly, because I really like that red star cross thing on his chest. That, that red really stands out and makes him look cool. And, and I don't know whose color choice that was, because that's not you know film accurate or whatever, and it's not used inside the book. But it's sharp here. It really looks cool. So I, I like that. So I'm going to go a B on the cover. Interior art. Now, I do love it. I think it's really good. Um, but I do also feel like it, it took a little bit of a step down. And I'm, I'm having a hard time really pinning down why I think so. And I, I think, honestly, it comes down to uh, inconsistency, as Paul said. Um, it feels a little... Lucy Goosier in the very beginning with the with the um, box sequence and everything, it feels a little little lighter inked as compared to the rest of the book. You know, once you get to page 23 with the old man, it's it's really like the ink style just flip flopped. It went from kind of a light ink to a very heavy, thick line. Uh, and it's just kind of odd. And to me, it was a little jarring. But. You know, that's not to say it's bad. It's it's just a little strange. Um, so I do think the art took just the slightest step down in this. But having said that, I'm still going to rate it an A minus. I, I think it's still great. Uh, and then the story, for the most part, I like what's added. Um, but I do miss some of the dialogue that that didn't make the transition over from the film. Um, but that's been throughout this entire adaptation. I mean, it's not just this one issue that's been kind of symptomatic of the whole thing. It's getting the flavor of the story, but it's not exactly hitting every single beat. But at the same time, it's also giving us some uh, stuff, some insights in particular that we don't get in the film. So it's kind of a give and take in that aspect. So uh, story wise, I'm going to say an A minus and do do an overall grade of an A minus for the whole book. I, I still think it's really, really fantastic. And uh, I, I love this cliffhanger ending uh, of the of the different cliffhangers, you know, through the series, this is my second favorite one. So, you know, this is, you, you know, with the way this one ends that, ooh, you know, it's it's going to be real next issue. You know, it's it's all coming down to, yeah, it's on. It's on. I wonder if the dialogue changes are not reflected in the uh, screenplay. I'm wondering if this story reflects dialogue from the screenplay that may have been ad-libbed or changed in filming. Very possible. So things that we say, oh, why didn't they put that in there? For all we know, may have been last second decisions to put them in the film. And it's easy to, you know, in, in this day and age to, to criticize that and, and maybe forget that, you know, in the age we live in now, you know, everything's out there streaming or on DVD or whatever. You know, you got to remember back during this time, you know, these guys may have only ever seen the film once, if at all. You know, you had to actually get to the theater to go see it. You know, it, it wasn't available to just, you know, slap on the tube and watch whenever they wanted to. So, you know, if Kraft went and saw the film, then, you know, he's remembering what he remembers. You know, he didn't have a, a, a you know, a lifetime of growing up watching the movie over and over and over again, like I have to where I've memorized, you know, pretty much all the dialogue of the film. So, you know, you've got to cut it that slack as well. So, you know, he's he's working with the script and he's working with, you know, his memory of seeing the film and, you know, doing the best he can. So you know, I didn't mean it as a harsh criticism, but there's obvious differences, you know, in, in a lot of the dialogue. So. 
I don't think it came off as a harsh criticism. I just had the thought <laughs> that, uh, that that maybe that's the the explanation for it. Have you guys noticed the cover box on the front covers? Uh, I the corner box. First couple issues. What's up? There was nothing in the first one, but from two on, there's uh, the thing in the hand, the crystal, whatever. The life life clock, yeah. The life clock. I guess that's the life clock, and it's like, I guess you could say clear, or it looks blue, and then it's red on one side. Right. And then uh, and then there's like a outline of Logan, I guess, running. Right. I, I don't know if you guys had noticed that or mentioned it. Or... We talked about it a little bit oh, in, okay. this, in the Wasn't second episode. I just it's... noticed it, so that, that's why I was like, oh, yeah. But I wasn't here for the second episode, or the first. So never mind. Yeah, there's uh, an image I found somewhere or other of a mock-up, I guess, when they were putting together the cover for Star Wars, number one. And they were, uh, I, I guess, mocking it up is the right way, you know, when they were putting the whole thing together before they had come up with, uh, whatever is in the corner for Star Wars number one, they were using this Logan's Run box as a placeholder. Oh, really? Yeah, and I thought that was cool. I've got that image somewhere or other. If I come across, I'll try to share it, uh, you know, on the on the Facebook page so people can see what I'm talking about. If I can scare it up again. And by the time this comes out, uh, it'll be old old. But I put uh, I put the Yojo Destro slash box on our page. People <laughs> wonder like what. Cool. So next time, next issue, uh, next episode, we will cover the final issue of the adaptation, which goes all the way to the end of the film. But what did we decide as far as uh, the series as a whole? We are going to cover all seven issues, correct? Yeah, there's only two more issues after the story concludes. So we're going to cover them and see what we think about how how it was uh presented but also probably speculate on where it might have gone from there if the sales had been enough to keep it going nobody's yeah, it, ever done a another comic on this right or like a i thought there was there have been a couple yeah i think oh, there's okay. at least two other logan's run series that continued uh, the series or went back I, and didn't i've adaptation. never read them my understanding is that they are either adaptations or continuations of the novels i don't think anybody and i could be wrong and somebody please chime in and correct me if i'm wrong on this but to my knowledge the film has not never been touched on again in comics hmm. uh, so far as i know I've never read the other Logan's Run stuff, so I, I you know, I'm I'm kind of talking out my ass here, but my understanding is that it's all based on the novels, of which there's at least two, possibly three novels. I read Logan's Run when I was a kid, you know, the novel, and I have to be completely honest, I hated it. But a lot of the reason I hated it is that it's not the movie. It's it's the original story that the movie is very loosely based on. Um, it's really different, and I just didn't like it. To me, it gave me a real strong, like, boy and his dog feeling to it, which I'm not the biggest fan of that either. So it was just kind of lost on me. I mean, I, I might feel completely different reading it today, but at the time, I, you know, I was a kid, and there's a lot of weirdness and sex and all that, and it just kind of gave me an icky feeling as a kid. So, ew, yeah, exactly. Ew, ew. So, yeah, I just didn't get anything out of it at all. I've, 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 ha I've had a longstanding prejudice against the novel for that reason. Let me ask you a question. Uh, from the point when they're in the city and then when they start running and then they end up in Washington, D.C., how much distance do you think they cover? 
Yeah, I I've wondered that myself before. It, I think it's it's hard to say because I, I've had that thought before is like, wow, are these domes like, you know, right there in Washington? Because, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. The, the comic doesn't give you any sense of time or distance. Well, do, you, do you think they cross an ocean at any point? No, no, I don't no. think. Because there, would there be a reason why Logan and Jessica have English accents? Uh, that I've also I've wondered about a lot too, but that, it's weird because they but not everybody does. Yeah, not everybody does. Like you know, Francis. Yeah, I, I know, which makes no sense whatsoever when you th- when you when you start to think about why people have accents in the first place. Yeah, if they're all bred by machines, which they make that point a couple of times in the film that they're you know they're they're raised you know born and bred in breeders and everything then why would they not all speak the same dialect with the same accent? Yeah, that it really doesn't make any sense at all, but that's one of those things I, you know. Just a silly thought. I mean, it's really not that important, but it's just like, like it occurred to me they're in Washington, and yet they both have English accents. It's, it's definitely one of those fun things to think about, because it's the same thing as, like, why the hell doesn't Charlton Heston freak out when the apes are speaking English in Planet of the Apes? It's just one of those things that you kind of accept and don't think too hard about, but when you think about it, it's fun to think about and try to... <laughs> he should have landed, they spoke English, and he should have said, damn, I'm on Earth. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> It should have been over it. <laughs> I mean, I, I enjoy thinking about things like that because sometimes some really fun things come out of it. Because there was a, a whole Planet of the Apes series from Dynamite a couple years back that came out of the thought that, you know, I, I have to admit, I never thought about this as a kid. But somebody pointed out that the first time it was nighttime in the Planet of the Apes, once Heston and his crew shows up, they should have realized where they were because of the moon in the sky. So somebody spun that into an entire series about why there is no moon. And it was actually really cool. The, the moon had been destroyed. And even if Heston hadn't blown the planet up, the planet was doomed anyway because the moon had been destroyed. So, I mean, he they spun it into something cool. So sometimes, you know, things like that can, you know, when you start no-prizing them, you might be able to get something really cool out of it. So who knows? Maybe there's some really cool or sinister reason why these different people have different accents i i don't know but <laughs> so the nearest metropolitan area to washington dc is baltimore so if we wanted to say that the city oh. you know like maybe was built on the remains of an old city and baltimore is on the coast so box could have been part of some uh, processing plant for seafood fish plankton of crabs oh wait no well, that, uh, that thing that power, you know, that they go through to get back into the city later, again, spoiler, that thing in real life is somewhere in Texas because I keep seeing there's a Logan's Run fan group that I'm a part of on Facebook. And I keep seeing people posting pictures from there that they go to see it, you know, to mm-hmm. making like a pilgrimage of sorts. And they take pictures of it. It still exists. looks exactly the same. And it's somewhere in, I want to say Dallas. I could be wrong about that, but it's somewhere in Texas. So now well, I know the domes could have just been in Washington. I mean, like a day's walk, like if they only walk for a day, I mean, you've got the Potomac river there that could have been sucking in. Well, I mean, you know, this is, this is the 23rd century. We're not given any clue as to when the world went to shit or what, it, what exactly even happened. I mean, everybody always assumes, you know, nuclear apocalypse, it could be anything. Um, but, you know, say this is more or less based on, 
you know, our society as it exists today, you know, it, it could it could be right outside of Washington because, I mean, that's where the president operates out mm-hmm. of and the president, you know, they'd want to preserve the president in the case of an apocalypse. So, you know, all of this could be spinning out, you know, from that that area. So I don't know. In the film, I'm trying to remember how many days and nights we see once Jessica and Logan leave the uh, leave the city. And I know it's at least one nighttime sequence. So, you know, they travel for at least a couple of days. I don't know how you know how far could you make it in a couple of days, you know, on foot. It also, I mean, I hate to just belabor points, but the whole thing with you know you give up your life at thirty uh, seems to me to be a solution to possible overpopulation uh, and possible lack of uh, food and whatever. And that will make sense until they come out and there's all this unoccupied land which is seems to be fertile <laughs> so it's like well why it, instead of killing off the population when you have 30 why don't you just expand and, and, and hit more areas i don't you know like it just kind of kills the idea of why they might have adopted this uh my no prize for that now i mean you can punch all kinds of holes in this but my sort of half-assed no prize for this is i think it's kind of like a wall-e situation like they they built the domes to protect themselves from whatever happened, and and they're in there for protection. And they never came out to see that things had settled down. Yeah, and and at some point, something was supposed to I don't know, alarm was supposed to go off and open the city, or you know, a probe was supposed to go out and do samples, or something was supposed to happen to say, okay, crisis is over, the planet is now sustainable again and let everybody out and it just hasn't happened yet for whatever reason i i think that there's a there's a ton of great story potential beyond the film so that's kind of why i'm interested to go you know and, and read those additional issues to see you know did they touch on any of this because I, I think you know we only just see this little portion with the old man you know outside the city but god only knows what's going on out there you know beyond you know, what we see, there, there could still be threats out uh, there in the, the TV world. Show comes in. Still, yeah. See, I, I, I don't think I ever watched the TV show, so I'm not, you know, I know that they do go out and explore out there. What do they, do they run into mutants or monsters? Uh, or it's been so like long that? since I have seen it. I don't, I mean, there's, there's, there's things out there. There's 1980, 1970 TV threats. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> silence, you know, like, you know zombies you know biker uh, gangs. no i don't i don't know if there was you had like gangs and like little towns like trader towns like kind of like playing fallout i think more along the lines of that right right so walking distance from maryland uh from baltimore maryland to washington dc it says 12 hours and 50 minutes 38 miles there so you, you could walk there now you figure you know that that would be like a day or two now out of curiosity, I did walking distance from Washington to New York City. That says it's 84 hours, 252 miles. But now that's not saying how many hours a day you're walking. That's also, that's also considering it under the current circumstances where everything's paved. And exactly, and, exactly. So You know, they're, they're not in quite that kind of condition anymore. The world has been... Uh, 
you know, beat to hell in their world. And it's a lot, a lot of it would be uneven terrain and that kind of thing. Right. If you start walking from New York, the chances of you just arbitrarily coming to Washington might not, you know, you, you would have to know where it is to find it. Whereas Baltimore to, you know, your chances of finding Washington walking from Baltimore are a lot better than walking from New York, right. I would think because of the distance. I, I just always assumed that, it was, you know, relatively speaking, that it was very that they're still very close to the city, and there's there's a couple reasons for that. For one, when they're going from the domes to the city, they're not in a hurry. They're not walking at a brisk pace. They're exploring. They're, you know, they're lost, yeah. and they're they're exploring a whole new world. And you know, we see them in several instances where they, you know, where they stop, they sit down, they go for a swim. So I mean, they're they're at a very relaxed pace. It's like and they're in Epcot. The op- yeah, and <laughs> and then in the ap- opposite direction, you know, when they're going from the city, uh, or excuse me, from Washington to the domes, they've got the old man with them. So it's you know, you know, they're you know not what, so yeah. if they've got so, the old man. So, it has to be in Washington. It has to be like right outside Washington or in Washington. Yeah, yeah. that's what I think, too. Something uh, I heard rumblings of the other day. I don't know how solid this is or whatever. So just, you know, take it as whatever. But I would love, love to see happen is, uh, you know, a couple of years back, we, we finally got. You know that that fanboy dream of uh, of a Planet of the Apes Star Trek crossover. I had heard some rumblings not long ago of a uh, Planet of the Apes Logan's Run crossover, and I would love that would be to. cool. I think that would be really cool because what if the reason that they were not released into this seemingly you know sustainable world is because the apes are out there? You know that would be cool. That that would be very yes. logical. You know. I think that yeah, would make sense. Yeah. I, I it sounds think, like it almost writes itself. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, I, w- I would like to see that. And that's still a book I would not mind us covering sometime is uh, Star Trek Planet of the Apes. That was a lot of fun. Well, that may take place soon. Because <laughs> I'd like to do that one, too. But in the meanwhile, I think we're going to call a close to today's show. And we will cover the fifth issue sometime soon. Cool. Thanks, guys, and thank you, everybody, for listening. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at twotruefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of DiManzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week. Bill? 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 Oh, Bill! Bill!